morning, church. I've chosen this section of scripture, Luke 24, with the intent of getting into the hearts and minds of the disciples on the first Resurrection Sunday. But as an introduction to this, I'd like to begin with an observation. And that is that the disciples of Jesus, to this point, were a pretty hopeless bunch. That may be a bit strange way to start a sermon, maybe rude or even harsh. But as a follower of Christ myself, I freely joined that band of hopeless disciples. And I've known a few of you now for about 40, almost 40 years, so feel free to join me in that band of hopeless disciples. We are, after all, on our best days, unworthy servants. We do see through a glass darkly. We are frail and limited. And we are desperately and constantly in need of the instruction of the Bible and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. I like to look at a few passages in Mark's Gospel to see the disciples' reaction when Jesus explains what's about to happen to him. Mark chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Messiah. And he began to teach, to them, teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. And he said this to them plainly. So there's no possibility they misunderstood. But what was the disciples' reaction as expressed by Peter? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The conversation could have gone something like this. Jesus, uh, this is not exactly what we're looking for in a Messiah. We're looking for a king. We want to take our country back. We want to be great again. Now, it's helpful to know that Mark's primary source for his gospel was Peter. Now, I understand that there's an element of the Holy Spirit. Brett, where are you? But Peter did his homework. Mark did his homework. He talked to Peter. So Peter is actually saying that, hey, Jesus told us exactly what was going to happen, but we missed it. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, three days he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They travel to Capernaum. They get to the house where they're staying. He says, hey guys, what were you talking about on the way? They kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus is telling them that he's going to suffer and die at the hands of men and they're worried about who's the teacher's pet. Now we go to the Lord's Supper, Mark 14. After the Lord's Supper on the way to Gethsemane, Jesus tells them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And that's exactly what happened. Judas arrives with a, a crowd of swords and clubs 
greets Jesus with a kiss. And after a brief flash of bravery with a disciple, a sword, and an ear, Jesus is led away. And then in verse 50, they all left him and fled. Next we come to early Sunday morning. The ladies go to the tomb and find it empty. They come back to the disciples and report what they've seen and heard. And what was the disciples' response? In Luke 24, 11, these words seemed to be an idle tale and they did not believe them. Now, isn't this shocking? People I grew up knowing as St. Peter and St. John, they missed it. This is, the disciples were not sitting around campfires eating s'mores and singing songs on this Resurrection Sunday. They were disillusioned, wondering how things have gone so horribly wrong. They had a worldview that led them to believe that a Messiah was this way, but they missed it. Disillusion, that's the best word I can come up with. <laughs> and this is the backdrop we find our text. So Luke 24, 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, and about, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with one another about all the things that had happened. While they were talking together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding as you walk? Now, what we have here is dramatic irony. Two disciples talking about Jesus. Jesus comes up and asks, what are you guys talking about? But they don't know the one they're speaking of is the one they're speaking to. What was their response? They stood still looking sad. Why such a visceral response? Yet another dagger of disillusionment. Verse 18 brings us out. And one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And he said, What things? Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Notice in verse 19, a man who was a prophet. Verse 21, we had hoped. Jesus is already irrelevant to them. He's in the past tense. They moved on. They've taken down the posters and rolled up the tents. Jesus didn't fulfill any prophecy. He's dead. He goes on. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They, went, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying they had even seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exact, exactly the woman said, but him they did not see. Now, at this point, Jesus could have just said, hey, guys, it's me. I've risen. I'm alive. 
but that's not what he does. Verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. First, he gives them a chiding. You guys are too slow. Second, he asks them a question. What a great question. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? No, they would have said. Their worldview led them to say no. But they missed it. And third, he gives them a Bible study. He opens the scripture to them. Why? Because the confidence of heaven is found in the scriptures. If we are to be a missional church, we must know our Bibles, both Old and New Testament. Now, we have to leave our two disciples there on the road with Jesus and move on to a, a few points. The, me, the assignment I've been given is to talk about what it means to be a missional church. I want to leave you with two, two words. The first word is historical, and the second word is rational. The message of the cross of Jesus is a historical message. If we look back at the verses we've read, you'll see a phrase that repeats itself several times. The two disciples were talking to Jesus about the things that happened. Verse 14. Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened in verse 18? And then again, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Verse 21. These things actually happen. What we're dealing with is history. The whole purpose of Luke writing his gospel was to create an orderly account of the things that happened. That's my loose paraphrase. But there's like 12 times in the Gospel of Luke that he uses that same phrase, the things that happened. Peter echoes this when he says in 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What we're dealing with is historical testimony of things that actually happened. John says the same thing. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the words of life. The life was made manifest, and he, we have seen it, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. If we are to be a missional church, this has to be the center of our worldview, that we are dealing with a historical message. There's an idea out there that, Jesus, that the disciples of Jesus made it all up, that they hid the body and made up the story of the resurrection. But if that's true, how do you explain that all one apostle was martyred? As one commentary wrote, P 
People die for a conviction, that's true, but who's going to die for a concoction? Another notion is that's just myth and legend. It's just a fairy tale. That's what the, the, the interesting thing to me is that's exactly what the disciples thought. It was a tall tale. People criticize the gospel for being a tall tale, but then again, people love fairy tales. Why? Because they want them to be true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality to which all fairy stories point. Good triumphs over evil. The environment gets cleaned up. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. God will create all things new. John Stott wrote, Nothing kills evangelism more than the loss of conviction of the truth, relevance, and power of the gospel. Nothing kills evangelism more than the loss of conviction of the truth, relevance, and power of the gospel. If we are to be a missional church, we have to be constantly reminded and live out the truth and relevance and power of the gospel. My second point is that the message of the cross is rational. So not only did it happen, but it also makes sense. Now I've spoke a bit about worldview and that the disciples' worldview needed to change with regard to the Messiah. In the context of your worldview, do you have a view of the world that helps you explain the fundamental questions of life? Paul Gauguin, a French painter, in 1898 and 1897, somewhere in there, painted a large canvas that is currently hangs in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Now, in the upper left corner, he wrote in French, Du venons nous, que sommes nous, où allons nous? Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? Gauguin's worldview did not provide him answers to these questions. And by and large, our friends and neighbors don't have answers to these questions either. Most of the time, they're not even asking the questions. If we are to be a missional church, we ourselves must be able to answer these fundamental questions and somehow find the courage to ask our friends and neighbors these questions. Now, I wrote on my notes the answers to these questions, but I'm not going to give them to you. I'm going to take a page from Jesus. Jesus, we have recorded in the Gospels, Jesus asking over 300, 307 questions. He was asked 183 questions. He answered less than 10. The question that he asked that I pointed out earlier, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? I bet that stuck in the crawl of the disciples for a long time until they got it. How do you answer these questions? 
Where do you come from? What are you? And where are you going? The answers are only found in Jesus Christ. John Paul Sartre, a philosopher who died in 1980, <clears throat> had a worldview that led him to write these words. The world is ugly, bad, and without hope. How about that for a bumper sticker? The world is ugly, bad, and without hope. Peter had a worldview after it was adjusted by Jesus Christ that led him to write this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What was it that took Peter and the other disciples from a hopeless bunch to this living hope? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It had to be something dramatic. What is it that's going to take us, a band of hopeless disciples, to living hope? It's the same resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me be clear, I'm not saying that Jesus is a way to God or a way to heaven. I'm saying that Jesus is the only Savior because he's the only one qualified to save. He's the only one who's died for sinners. He's the only one who rose from the dead. And he's the only one coming again. Jesus is the only one to save us from the ugly, bad, and hopelessness of life. Brett, where are you?